You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Guidepost. Willie Goldsmith here. Uh, we are going to talk science today. I know we've been very much in the weeds of management over the past couple of episodes. Lots going on at the regional level, the federal level, the interstate level. But today, we're going to go back into my own happy place, talk about some exciting research that we're on the cusp of uh, getting on the water to complete. And with me today is my co-conspirator, Will Poston. Uh, welcome, back to the po- welcome back to The Guidepost, Will. Thanks for having me, Willie. And uh, yeah, not just any science, uh, Albi science. So uh, certainly very exciting, exciting. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to uh, dive into it. Awesome. Well, we are really excited today to have with us a special guest and a dear friend of mine. We have Dr. Jeff Kneebone, who is a research scientist at the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life at the New England Aquarium. Uh, Jeff is going to be conducting this research on Falls Albacore that we're partnering with uh, this coming fall. So welcome to the Guidepost, Jeff. Thanks, Dr. Goldsmith. I won't forget your science roots and your tuna tagging background. So happy to be here and to talk with you both. Awesome. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, it's always good to see your smiling face. Uh, we know you've got your uh, your fieldwork cut out for you this, this summer. So we appreciate you taking a few minutes to uh, to join us today to talk about this research. And before we really get into it, Jeff, I think it would be great to just tell us a bit about yourself and kind of how you came to this role at the aquarium. I think I think you and I met, man, probably 12 years ago or something like that back when uh back when our buddy Doug Zemeckis was doing his his cod research up in up in Salem Sound in the Gulf of Maine and it's it's been a long strange trip since then indeed well I I think you and I are friends and share a lot in common because our background is similar you know like you I grew up loving to fish and as an avid recreational uh, freshwater and saltwater fisherman and I used that passion for fishing to really guide my career. So I think maybe when I was in high school, I realized that I wanted to go into marine science for sure. I've always had a passion for big fish. Um, started out with sharks, but in my later years, I've definitely become more passionate for tunas. And I'm super excited to be transitioning to false albacore. And mostly I've been dealing with bluefin and yellowfin and big eyes, but it'll be cool to add a new fish to the mix. But yeah, for, for me, my background, I went to the University of New Hampshire uh, for undergrad and master's. I got my PhD at UMass Dartmouth. And throughout all of those degrees, it is all about fish and fishing. I tried to do a lot of cooperative research involving both commercial and recreational and charter fishermen. And basically kind of uh, made my passion, my profession by going out and fishing as part of research projects and trying to identify research questions that are associated with hopefully promoting more responsible fishing practices and sustainable fishing. Because if I can't fish, I don't know what else I would do. And I feel like that constant desire for sustainable fishing and good fishing and fishery longevity is what keeps me going. So Jeff, I feel like you and I, we've done 
We've caught Trout at Tuna Camp together, the Tuna Conference out in, uh, you know, out in uh, Lake Arrowhead, California. Uh, you know, we've been offshore together. We've, you know, you, you've done all sorts of kinds of fishing. And I'm just wondering, you know, across that spectrum, what's your, what's your favorite? What's your favorite thing to do? If you could go fishing tomorrow anywhere for anything, what would you do? Oh, Tautogs for sure. I started catching them in the Long Island Sound and off New Jersey when I was a kid. And that's my favorite fish now. It's what I look forward to do in the spring. It's what I look forward to do in the fall. Um, so I'd say them for sure, but it's between them and Tunis. Like for Tunis, it wavers though. There were some years where I was heavy into the general category bluefin game as a deckhand on a boat. And then there's other years where I was really heavy into the canyon scene. So Tunis, I've wavered, but Togs, I've never wavered on. So I got to go with them. I like it. The unsung hero, right? Always, always there. Uh, Always in shore, ready to do battle. So I'm a, I'm a big fan as well. I think when I first started fishing for him, I was basically just throwing crabs into the ocean. I was so bad at hooking them, but it's been been fun to learn and and see the uh, the art and science of catching tog. So uh, totally uh, totally understood. And I'm not going to say there's a right answer, but that that seems like it's pretty close. So let's get into this albi stuff. You know, I think this is a species false albacore. Uh, that is coveted by recreational fishermen up and down the coast, you know, fly anglers, light tackle, uh, guys offshore will catch them when they're fishing for other species as well. Uh, and I guess I'm just curious, Jeff, you know, can you tell us a bit about what we know or what we don't know about, about false albacore? Obviously guys love catching them, but from a science perspective, what, what do we know? Yeah, really, uh, not much. I mean, for me, I'm more focused uh, in like a movement ecology type guy, um, population or stock structure and trying to figure out where species of fish move, what their migrations are like. So I can speak to that better than something like life history, like where do they spawn or how fast do they grow and things like that. But albacore or frost albacore are found all, you know, all along the U.S. East Coast. There's fisheries down in Florida and they, they seem to migrate up here in New England in the mid-Atlantic in the summer and in the fall. And then, you know, when the water cools off, they go back south. So it seems like there's a coastal migration that's going on, but it's really not well documented. Uh, there really hasn't been much tagging effort on the species to date. So we kind of have a loose idea of where they're going based on fisheries-dependent data, meaning where they're caught. But, you know, we don't know scientifically what's going on, like where, where they're found, you know, are there different groups of fish that migrate differently? Like are some resident, say in the mid-Atlantic, or is there a specific group of false albacore that always comes back to Nantucket or Vineyard Sound or something? So that idea uh, in fisheries, it kind of grows, goes with the word contingents or discrete groups of fish that kind of exhibit like or similar movement patterns while being part of a bigger coastwide population. So really that's probably one of the main questions that we're gonna get at. So our study site is in Nantucket Sound, Vineyard Sound, you know, in basically the body of water that separates Cape Cod from Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. That's an Albi hotbed uh, in the late summer and fall. There's tons of effort in there. I don't need to tell your listeners that, but it's a great uh, location for us to do this work because it fits right in with other research projects we're doing in the region. So the type of tag technology that we're going to use to track the false albacores also is being used to track movements of sea turtles and sharks in the same area. So it's really 
a nice complementary study where we can use the same infrastructure to monitor multiple different species. Awesome. No, it's it's uh, <laughs> definitely in terms of the answer is uh, the answer to the question, what do we know about albacore movements? The answer is sounds like it's not much at this point, right? As you've said, we know there are there's kind of this this loose north-south migration, but when folks are catching them in late October, early November off southern New England, they're catching fish off North Carolina as well. And so the question of these multiple contingents, you know, what what do we have here in terms of connectivity? I think it's a a really a really fascinating question and certainly one of, of interest to anglers. And Will, I think you know this zone well, right? That that uh, Nantucket Sound area is that you've spent some time fishing up there, have you not? Yeah, no, I've uh, certainly chased some albies um, up on the vineyard. Uh, caught my first one actually from shore, which was a, a big achievement for myself. Um, but but yeah, I mean, like when I first got into albie fishing, probably you know really caught the bug three or four years ago, just because when I was that was the first opportunity I, I really had to be up there in the right time. Um, I remember like thinking back, like uh, you know about how these fish appear in New England. They really just kind of show up sometimes or uh um and it's it, it like always used to like looking back on it, it was like this is like a counterclockwise migration right like they come in and they go down they're not like stripers where they go up and down the coast um as tight as you'd think so i think you know one of those uh any information we'll get from uh this acoustic um tagging and from the the telemetry studies is going to be super interesting i think and, and jeff we've talked a little bit about this as well because one of the really, really interesting things about false albacore is they're not exactly the most delicious fish in the ocean and we see that most of the fish are released and so that kind of begets another set of questions right about post-release mortality you know are these fish surviving after they're caught on different gear types and is that a kind of question that we can try to answer through some of this research as well yeah, most definitely. So the tags will allow us to look at the movements of the fish uh, after they're released. And you can kind of use the lack of movement or if a fish is just in one spot and it stays there for months and months after the rest of the population has gone, you can use clues like that to figure out maybe if they survived or, or died after catch and release. So everyone knows false albacore are really hard fighting fish. Uh, they exercise themselves a lot when they're trying to escape. And a lot of times they're caught on light tackle. So, you know, these two things sometimes don't end well for fish when they're caught and released. And obviously with a, it being a predominantly catch and release fishery in, in New England, post-release mortality, as we call it, or catch and release mortality is, is a, is a way that they they could you know the population could incur some losses even though you know people are catching or releasing fish maybe not all of them are are surviving the capture or handling event and we can try to get at some of that information with this tagging and try to figure out if there's any type of correlation between the capture event so like how long the fish are on the line where they're hooked is there you know, evidence of bleeding. Did the fish get wrapped up? Are they, is there, you know, physical damage or injury on the body? Um, things like how long they're out of the water. We can look at all the tag data and see which fish are moving and maybe which fish we never hear from or are not moving to try to piece together that puzzle and hopefully try to explain, you know, how many of the fish survive and for those that don't survive, what factors may be leading to them to uh to die yeah jeff i i think that's 
going to be a kind of like the hopefully one of the main outcomes of this just because like when you're on a good albi feed you're catching a ton of fish you know so if that if that number or if that catch and release mortality rate is higher than we think you know uh, one boat could have a pretty large impact on one uh you know one one region or you know that that time of year so jeff before we kind of i think listeners are probably pretty interested to learn about the mechanics of this because the you know the 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 network of of acoustic receivers and the you know the the way in which you tag these fish or how we hope to tag these fish is really interesting but i thought it's worth maybe stepping back for a second you know i want to acknowledge first off um you know orsted uh the wind developer for helping us with support for the study as well as as well as coasted Mar sunglasses and you know thinking about orsted and thinking about offshore wind uh, as something that you know, as you and I both know quite well, is is coming to our coast rapidly. And you mentioned the acoustic array and the receivers that you guys have in Nantucket Sound. And if you could just give us a quick kind of download as to what it is that you're doing uh, when it comes to putting these acoustic tags and other species, tuna, sharks, and all now false albacore, and kind of how that relates to offshore wind development. We obviously have these very specific questions around false albacore with, when it comes to connectivity and, and post-release mortality. But from, for some of these other species, can you just talk a bit about kind of the, you know, the, the wind relevance of some of the research you're doing? Sure. Uh, that's a lot of big question there, and it's going to take me a while to answer it. But I think the way that I need to start doing it is by making sure everyone understands what passive acoustic telemetry is. Um, if you don't understand how the technology works, it'll be hard to interpret my, my answer. So basically what we're doing um, is creating a, a listening network for fish tags. So I try to make the analogy of it. It's like, like a cell phone uh, network system for fish. So if you think about your acoustic transmitter or the tag being a cell phone, and we have these devices we call acoustic receivers that we put all over the ocean. And those are like the cell towers, right? So those are the devices that are constantly listening for transmissions from the cell phone or the tag, right? So basically what you do is you put a bunch of those acoustic receivers or the cell towers throughout your study site. So for me, uh, for this algae project and for the sea turtle project that the New England Aquarium has going and, our, and some shark work that we're also doing around Nantucket, we have those acoustic receivers positioned basically all over Nantucket Sound um, from Muskegon Channel out towards Woods Hole and then to the east off Monomoy. So we have, I think, around 30 of them in Nantucket Sound. And those acoustic receivers are always listening for our tagged fish or turtles. So those transmitters, the acoustic tags, send out unique signals or pings every minute or two and you know the you know the ID of each one of the tags you put out. So we're like tag number one is on false albacore, tag number two is on a turtle, tag number three is on a shark, so on and so forth. So when you release the tagged fish or animal into the study site, they swim around and anytime they come within about a half a mile or less of an acoustic receiver, the receiver will hear the ping from the tag and log it into memory. So that basically is a record saying, hey, this fish, this animal was present in this spot at this exact time. So basically by letting your animals swim all over the study region, you've got these receivers at specific spots. You can just let all that play out through an entire season. Then at the end of the year, you go, you grab all of your acoustic receivers, you download all the data, and you can retroactively 
piece together where all the fish were throughout the season. So it's not a real-time monitoring platform. Um, we can learn a ton about the fish, but it's kind of in the past. Like we tag them, they do the thing. Once we download all the data, then we go back in and make maps, make animations, and actually look and learn about the movements. So there's a little bit of a lag there. But we're doing the same thing with offshore wind monitoring in southern New England. So I said we have an array of these acoustic receivers in Nantucket Sound. We also have a big array of them throughout the Massachusetts, Rhode Island wind energy area in southern New England. And the objectives of that study are very similar to what we're trying to do with false albacore. So there's a lot of different uh, highly migratory pelagic fishes that occur in southern New England. You've got you know, blue sharks, sharpfin makos, common threshers, bluefin, white marlin. So they all have been using that area for, I don't know, hundreds of years as migratory corridors or foraging grounds. And they've got you know use for that area, but their use may conflict with our intended use. So there's obviously a lot of wind energy development slated for that region. And we want to try to monitor um, the movements and the presence of those fishes and figure out if or at all if they're affected by offshore wind development. So it's the exact same principle. We put a ton of those acoustic receivers out throughout the wind energy areas. We tag, you know, bluefin, makos, blue sharks around the region. And then we just look for movement. So are our receivers detecting our tagged fish? Which receivers are getting the most detections? How long are the fish staying in specific areas? What, how are they moving around the area? And then most particularly, I guess, is how are they using the areas in different years? So the acoustic tags are really cool because they have extended battery life. So the false albacore tags that we're going to use have about a 400 day battery life. So a little over a year, we'll be able to track them. But some of the tags we're using in bigger sharks and bluefin have up to an eight year battery life. So basically we can track individual fish for up to eight years and see if they're coming back year after year. And that's important because this offshore wind development project is going to be long lasting. Right now it's in the planning stages. There's a whole bunch of different projects slated to begin very soon, but the timeline is protracted. It's drawn out. So things are really not going to get going for the next five to 10 years. And if we have tags in fish that we can monitor throughout that entire time, we'll be able to look at changes in their behaviors, their movement patterns to try to infer whether or not they're affected by all that offshore wind activity. So huge long answer. I hope I hit everything. Th thank you for indulging me. You definitely did. I think, you know, it's useful just to show that this, for you, this is a new species, but this is not a new approach, right? You have done a lot of work with this. Was it your dissertation? You were doing this on sand tiger sharks, is that right? In Plymouth and looking at, you know, their movements on a, on a much more local scale. And so, you know, just to, just to demonstrate here that one of the great things about this is we have this expert in acoustic telemetry, Jeff, who is going to be working on this new species that we really don't know anything about, false albacore. So it's an awesome opportunity, and we're, we're, we're pretty excited to, to, to get it off the ground. Willie, I'm actually curious, too, and this is probably a question for um, both you and Jeff because of, you, you know, y'all's work with Bluefin. Um, but, like, you know, we've never done any tagging, really, on false albacore. Um, but I'm wondering if you guys can like dive into, um, 
I guess for lack of a better word, the the physical surgery of implanting one of these tags into, you know, a smaller bluefin, if you will. That is definitely a Jeff question. Uh, Will, my, my, my tagging experience is with pop-up satellite tags, which is a far less elegant and uh, surgical procedure than, uh, than implanting a, an acoustic tag in a, in a tuna. So Jeff, yeah, if you could share a little bit about kind of the mechanics of how we envision this working. Yeah, that's a great question. So we'll see. I'll say, but stop by saying that I think false albacore and bluefin are, are two completely different beings. Uh, bluefin, we mostly tag, or I mostly tag a juvenile bluefin, so probably less than maybe 50, 60 pounds. So we just catch them on a rod and reel, and then we have a rubber, a knotless dip net that we use to get them on board. And uh, basically, you know, do the old trick where you, you cover the eyes with a wet towel and we put a, a deck hose on the gills to make sure that there's oh, fresh water flowing over. And then it's a really quick process. We use this nifty device called a trocar. It's basically like a, it, it creates like a round hole in, in, a, in a body cavity. It's used a lot in human surgeries or any, any type of surgeries just to like get a hole uh, done through the body cavity. And we have one that's specifically matched to the size of the transmitters. So you basically just get the tuna on the deck, calm it down, make sure that it's in the right place puncture a quick hole in the abdominal cavity, you slide the tag in, two quick sutures, a measurement, and then it's gone. The process takes like maybe two minutes and um, it usually goes pretty well. That towel over the eyes technique on Bluefin works fantastic. Uh, and they kind of just let you do your thing. And as long as you're quick, uh, they do really well. With false albacore, I think we might be in for a different set of circumstances. Uh, they are crazy when you bring them out of the water um, a lot of times and they're they're much smaller right so the, one of the good things about the bluefin is there's they're bigger they're a little bit easier to handle but a small tuna might present some challenges in terms of getting them calmed down on the boat so we're we're thinking about different ways to maybe immobilize them to prepare them for, for surgery. Um, you know, those things called tuna tubes exist where you, you just stick a skipjack in a tube and there's constant water flowing over the body. And they, you know, when people want to use them for Marlin baits, I was thinking, well, maybe we can adapt something like that to hold the false albacore in a specific spot and constantly have a ton of water pumping over the gills. Cause we know that time out of water is probably going to be one of the things that may lead to, uh, Mortality, because if you know, if you think about when you sprint, like if you do like a hundred meter dash, right, and you come out of it and you're winding, you're huffing puffing for air, the first thing that you do is you breathe heavy to try to replenish your oxygen. So that's equivalent to a false albacore fighting really hard for a couple minutes on hook and line. But then if you take the fish out of the water, imagine puffing and not being able to ventilate. So it just exacerbates the stress. It makes it worse. So we want to try to, you know, once we take the albacore out of the water, we don't want to, you know, have it just be out of the water for two, three more minutes when we're doing surgery. My goal is to have, you know, get get the water flowing back over the gills as quickly as possible. Find some way to put it in a container that, you know, keeps it from flopping around too much and keeps it steady so that we can do our job. And uh, I'll be perfectly honest, we're we're in the planning phases to try to figure out 
how, what type of design uh, of a system we're going to use to make that all happen. But I have some ideas and we're working on some prototypes and we'll definitely have it figured out um, by the time we start. And I think we're we're gonna. You were talking about maybe doing a couple test runs, right? A couple maybe sacrificial fish to just give this a shot, you know, before prime time, maybe before things really get rolling in the fishery, just to make sure that we can do the do this efficiently with a brand new species. Yeah, definitely. Practice makes perfect. Whenever you're working with fish and uh, doing field research, it's a lot of trial and error, and the tags are expensive, and the data are very important. So. We'll- it's stressful, man. It really is. It's it was stressful for me. I know that when you've just got you know, how much is it, how much is a single acoustic tag, Jeff? I think these are like three hundred and fifty dollars each, so it's not not super bad. But when you put out fifty, it adds up. But we want to do it right, um, not only for the the study uh, to be successful, but also f- to make sure that we have the minimal impact on the animals. Like we don't want to cause them to die. Like. If whenever you look at post-release mortality, the biggest question is, is the scientific handling of the fish affecting the survival of the fish independent of the actual catch and release event? So, you know, we're conscious of that potential bias and we're going to try to do whatever we can to make sure that the fish are treated uh, in the best possible manner and as quickly as possible to try to minimize additional stress and maximize the chance that they survive and show us how they move. And and as you've alluded to, right, this is this is the first effort on the species. So, you know, we've got we're going to be hopefully putting 50 tags out this fall and we hope again this will be the first part of a, a multi-part study, but we have a lot to learn here and if we do have challenges, you know, maybe that post-release mortality estimate will be more of a ceiling than a than a floor if you will in terms of estimating what the overall impact is. And so moving from there, you know, I, I want to mention again, in addition to, to Costa and Orsted, we're going to be really excited to work with a, a bunch of collaborators. We have guides, we have some, some tackle manufacturers who are going to be supporting the effort to, to get these tags out, um, you know, going aboard uh, guide, uh, guide boats, charter boats this coming fall. And I was wondering, Jeff, I know, obviously, you're going to be a huge part of this research, but do you have a couple of colleagues as well at the New England Aquarium that are going to be part of this as well? Yeah. Um, and they're pretty excited about it too. So we've, uh, like attracts like, right? So some of the people that have joined our lab are also avid recreational fishermen and they are super stoked about the opportunity to go, uh, catch fish for alvies and catch them and then marry their passion with their profession as well. So, uh, I have a new research scientist named Ed Kim. He's going to be helping on this project. And we have a couple of PhD students, um, Caroline Kaletos and Jesse Kittle, who will be helping as well. So we're trying to uh, amass a team so we can kind of divide and conquer a little bit and make sure that we get all of the tags out. Awesome. Well, we look forward to, to meeting them and, and getting all of us out in the water to get this work done. And Will, you were asking me earlier about, you know, how do we track these fish, right? You, t- you know, Jeff, Jeff mentioned how we track these fish with his receivers, right? With he, he deploys the receivers and then he goes out at the end of the year and he collects the receivers and sees what fish pinged when. And we can kind of create a, create a framework of what was going on in that region. But your, your question was kind of more beyond that, right? You want to explain to Jeff what you were wondering about? Yeah, you know, this goes back to, I think, kind of that that earlier thing I was talking about, just like the the coastwide um, 
movements, right? Like, do we know, um, like, how are we going to know, you know, when these fish that we, we catch in Nantucket Vineyard Sound, like, how are they leaving that area? Because we know they don't, don't stay there all year long, right? Um, so I guess that's kind of the main question, like, like how are we going to see um, when they're leaving the area? And then I guess the second part is, you know, that Willie brought up, like when you pull these rece- receivers is when we get this information. Um, so maybe like loosely, like what's your kind of timeline looking like for, you know, pulling this data and what, you know, when uh, we might start getting some, um, you know, some real hard science on, on uh, these tags. Yeah, well, great question. So again, multi multi layers. So I'll start um, close to home and and move away. <clears throat> so we're gonna tag. Hopefully, I don't. I think the tags are supposed to arrive soon, like two weeks. Uh, so whenever they arrive in August, we'll uh, we'll start those trials and make sure we are up and running for the peak of the bite. Um, probably in September. The acoustic receivers in Nantucket Sound, our main study area, will probably stay in the water. We usually haul them about early November. So obviously we won't know anything until we get them out of the water and downloaded. So probably around Thanksgiving time, I'd say, is when we're going to really have a chance to look at what we found or what we what the what fish we detected and what the movements were like in Nantucket Sound area. So that Thanksgiving, Christmas, that window for the first insight. So for the coastwide movement, that's that's a great question. And we will be relying on other people, basically. So the cool thing about acoustic telemetry is that it's really popular uh, among a lot of different researchers, and they use it extensively along the U.S. East Coast. So these acoustic receivers are basically found in a pretty continuous fashion from Florida all the way up into Maine. So Every tag that we use will be able to be detected on any of those receivers, just like they will be in the Nantucket Sound. You know, everything's compatible. So if there's one off Hatteras and uh, one of the albacore pings in there, there's there's a chance we'll, we'll get those data. And that data sharing all occurs through regional acoustic telemetry data sharing networks. So basically... Scientists are all using this same technique to tag and monitor whatever they are doing, like whether it be turtles or fish or sharks or or, uh, horseshoe crabs. There's like central uh, repositories where everyone kind of pulls their data and then you can submit your list of uh, tags and then it's basically queried against a massive database of all the receiver data from the entire coast and any detections that may occur for your specific fish that get pulled out of that um, giant database get sent back to us. So that happens every six months. So we'll upload all of our false albacore transmitter data in, um, let's see, maybe hopefully around September if we have the tags out. And then the next data dump on that comes in March. And then the one after that comes, uh, I think it's around now in June. So it might be every three months, but basically there's going to be a lag and other researchers who are willing to share telemetry data will kind of upload their information and then we'll opportunistically see if any of the false outcore that we tagged up here have pinged in on other arrays along the coast. So it's a little bit of an indirect process and it definitely is going to take a little bit more time, but maybe like a year from now when we're looking at maybe year two of this study or to see if our 
Albacar are going to come back because if you remember, our tags have a 400-day battery life. So if we tag them in September, the tags are going to still be active until September 2023. We're going to have our receivers back out in Nantucket Sound. We'll be able to see if those fish come back. So it'll be about a year uh, out before we can try to get at that coast-wide movement component. But I'm optimistic that it will happen. Um, there's a lot of people who share data. The one thing that's the limitation is the fish have to swim in areas where they're receivers. So right now, most of the receivers are in coastal waters, pretty close to shore. So if, if the, you know, the false albacore move out into the canyons, there's a good chance we won't hear from them because there's no receiver coverage out there. But, you know, we'll be able to use that information as well because the coast is so well covered, right? If we don't see them going down the coast, but we see them back and forth in Massachusetts every year, we're pretty sure that they're going to move. They're moving outside of the receiver ray, so further offshore. And the other thing that's good to tie back to the offshore wind angle is with more and more offshore wind projects coming online, these acoustic telemetry arrays are being built further and further offshore. So we're hopefully between all of the projects that are starting now and uh, we'll continue over the next year, we'll have a lot of opportunity to get information about the migrations of our tag fish. Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for that explanation. That that makes a lot of sense. And it's great to see scientists getting along and, and playing nice and sharing their data to answer answer the various questions they have. And one kind of on the water question that I had is, if you're a fisherman, if you're an angler and you catch a an acoustically tagged false albacore, first off, how do you know? And second off, what do you do with that fish? And I guess you could expand that to any of the other species you're tagging, right? The sharks, the tunas, and everything else. What do you do when you encounter an acoustically tagged fish? That's a great question. It really depends. Uh, so with, in general, we mark our, we, so we apply two tags. So for an internal, a fish with an internal acoustic tag, say a bluefin, we also put uh, a Southeast Fisheries Science Center conventional external tag on it, a regular spaghetti tag. So we will be able to know if that fish is recaptured just based on the external tag. The incision wounds on the for the internal tags actually heals really quickly and you would probably would never know looking at the fish that there's a tag inside it. So it's really, really hard, and our and our external tags don't say, "Hey, there's a there's another tag inside this fish." Uh, we haven't we haven't gotten that uh, sophisticated. So I usually just tell people they, they can handle it within the bounds of the law. So if they catch a bluefin and it's got an acoustic tag in it and it's a legal fish, you know, they can keep it. Uh, same thing goes with a, with a thresher or in makos if if they are ever uh, on the table again. Um, so it's, we would encourage them to release it, but it's, as I said, it's really hard for them to know that there's a tag in the fish because it's not spelled out. Um, but some of our fish have external acoustic tags, so they can see, wow, there's like this weird looking tag. It's not a spaghetti tag. Um, and that has happened, and a lot of people just release the fish because they don't know, but it's the same thing. If it's a legal fish, um, you know, I don't own it. It's um, It can be harvested or released at the volition of the, the fisherman. And then with the false albacore, it's going to be the same. Um, I anticipate the incisions healing, and uh, we'll put 
an external tag on them. Believe it or not, ICAT, as part of their Atlantic Ocean Tropical Tuna Tagging Program, is tagging false albacore throughout the entire Atlantic. And that's one of the species that uh, we're looking to tag in this region. So we'll put an ICAT conventional tag on all of the false albacore that we catch. And it'll kind of be the same thing. You know, if someone wants to harvest that fish, they, they are certainly with, well within their right to do so. Uh, we would love if they release the fish, but it's not mandatory. It's almost like you've given that explanation before. <laughs> Somebody calls in with, oh, God, I killed this fish and it's got this weird little cylinder in its stomach. Uh, how how big are the uh, how big are the tags that are going in the false albacore, Jeff? You had mentioned the battery life is shorter. Is that because the tag is smaller? Yeah. So the acoustic transmitters come in all different sizes, um, and you hit the nail on the head. The, the size really dictates it, it's dictated by the battery. So you have a smaller tag, you have a smaller battery, you have a shorter battery life. It's just the law of physics and what have you. The ones that we're going to use on the false albacore. They're 13 millimeters in diameter, which is pretty small. Um, trying to think about a real world comparison. It's like half an inch, yeah, 13 millimeters. Yeah, so the, it's for bluefin, it's easy. The ones that I put in bluefin are like the size of a chapstick, almost exactly. So I would say probably, yeah, half the size of a chapstick is probably uh, uh, a good proxy. Gotcha. So pretty small. That's going to be a pretty delicate procedure, I guess. Um, but also a, a smaller incision, as you said, and everything else. So. Awesome, man. Lots, lots to do. And I guess when we get on the water again, when we get our when we get our troops out there to to get this work done, really just depends on when those fish show up, huh? That's the story of my life. <laughs> it's yeah. I never anticipated worrying about fish showing up more than I you know, have to worry about now. Like uh, when you want them at a certain space, you want them at a certain time. Uh, and that really throws a wrench into uh, going out and fishing for fun. If you don't catch them, oh, well, there's a lot more. Uh, the, the consequences are bigger if you if you need them now and you need them right here. Uh, so I'm optimistic that the Albies will stay true to their typical form and come in the area late August and September and we'll find them in our usual haunts. So I'm just going to stick with that. Not be completely finicky and funny, right? Yeah, they are called funny fish, right? I guess. Don't some people call them that? Oh, yeah. I, can't, maybe, or maybe, I don't know. Anyways, but yeah, well, we're going to be working with some good anglers. So if they're here, they'll get them. It's amazing how Murphy's Law has a way of knowing when there's somebody on the boat who wants to do work and or do field work and yeah, that work-life blend thing, you know, it really, it really gets you in trouble sometimes. You're like, oh, yeah, just going to go tag some fish. And then sure enough, like, you know, you're out there fishing for fun for a week, catching stuff. And then you bring out the you bring out the tags and everything disappears and it becomes a biological desert. So just part of the part of the adventure, I guess, a good test of your dedication. Story of my life. <laughs> well, we hope it turns around soon, Jeff. We hope those bluefin show up. I know you've been trying to get some acoustic tags out on bluefin here in late June. So uh, we really appreciate you joining us today and are pumped to get this work off the ground. It's great to hear the tags are coming in soon and looking forward to, to meeting the rest of your team and and hopefully getting these, these 50 tags out this coming fall. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm definitely excited about it and uh, we'll get it done and hopefully I can come tight in a couple during the process.
Yeah, what, what are you guys most excited to uh, to be chasing Albies with? You, you throwing, you know, a little epoxy jig, a little plastic, uh, maybe end it with a little uh, tactics and tackle question. Well, you are asking the wrong man. I'm an Albie novice. One of my buddies uh, took me for the first time last year, and I did catch a few on epoxies, and it was fun. But I'm going to be learning as much as anyone from this study about how to catch false albacore. Definitely a novice. My first one last year. So I'll be learning. I think the only thing I've ever caught one on is a, an epoxy. But I did get one vertical jigging for bluefin one or two years ago. That was my first one, but it didn't really count because I wasn't targeting them. It wasn't the traditional albie light tackle, epoxy, blowing up fish in the fall. Yeah. So I didn't count I was, it. I, I was going to say, Jeff, for me, I, I had caught so many of them, you know, and I'd never caught one kind of on purpose doing it the right way until a couple of years ago. I mean, one of those great ironies, right? You're offshore fishing for yellowfin or something. And you're, you know, people are catching 30 to 50 pound yellows and you drop down and you catch like a 20 pound false albacore on, on a, you know, a heavy jig stick. And you're like disappointed, even though the thing is a total beast, you know, on, even on that gear, just, it's amazing how, how quickly your expectations can adjust and your level of satisfaction, depending on, on what it is you're looking for. Um, but yeah, I like, I like ripping the epoxy jigs. Well, I haven't done a ton of it myself either. Of course, the, you know, the venerable, uh, soft plastics always have a, a, a good spot in the box as well. So whatever they want, you know, have everybody throw in something different and let the fish tell you what they want. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Hey Jeff, thanks again, man, for joining us. Uh, we know you're, you're on the water most days this time of year and, um, we'll, we'll see you out in the water soon. We'll, We'll get out there and hopefully the fish cooperate. I know they're generally programmed to disappear when, when the tagging gear gets on the boat, but hopefully we can, we can switch that around this fall. We will do our best. We'll, we'll make it happen. <laughs>